We are talking gas prices, but taking a bit of a closer look at what it is that is causing the prices to be so high here in Metro Vancouver, elsewhere in Canada as well. But as you've been hearing on the news in some places in Metro Vancouver, we're now seeing the price for regular unleaded gasoline has gone past the $2 per litre mark. Well, Tristan Hopper, who is a columnist with the National Post, is writing about all of the factors that are leading to the higher gas prices. And Tristan joins us now on the line. So great to have you on the program. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. Uh, You've taken a look at this because we have been rather quick to point to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the war in that country as having an impact on gas prices. But as you point out in your column, that's not the entire picture. No, no, there's a, well, first of all, I mean, the, the, the big reason that Canadian gasoline is always pretty expensive. It's just taxes. So I didn't mention that in my story, and everybody was angrily emailing me. It's like, it's the government's fault. Why didn't you say that? Um, So, yeah, I mean, when you notice, whenever you go to the States and the gas is significantly cheaper, that's entirely a function of taxes. We just tax the hell out of gas uh, way more than the Americans, way less than the Europeans, but uh, that's the number one reason. But um, we will, of course, recall two weeks ago, before Russia had invaded Ukraine, uh, gas prices were already at crazy highs. So basically what happened is the whole world is waking up from the uh, from two years of COVID lockdowns. And uh, as a result, there's this massive, huge, uh, overwhelming demand for petroleum. And all the places that typically made that petroleum and were making the petroleum before the pandemic, um, they're still uh, sort of shut down. So a whole bunch of people uh, want more fuel and then uh, there is no place to actually produce that fuel. So there was already a shortage And then I can get into why the Ukraine uh, invasion has caused even more of a shortage. And whenever you make uh, a shortage of something, it gets more expensive, obviously. We will talk about that and get into that. But I thought one of the points in your column was also very interesting. And maybe we're not thinking about that. It's kind of this idea of the world waking up and we're traveling more now. We're planning more road trips and airplane trips and we're using more fuel. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, one thing... um, I mean, I, I don't know if anybody remembers. The, so the early months of the pandemic, uh, there was pictures from some of the shutdown cities and like, you know, smog was disappearing. Highways were empty. So, um, you know, there's a number of reasons that wasn't great, but it was really great uh, for reducing our oil consumption. So just imagine uh, at a micro level. So at the federal civil service uh, just announced that it's going to start having federal civil servants go back to the office uh, wherever that may be. Um, so you, you can no longer just say, oh, I'm working from home. So um, that's going to result in a bunch more civil servants uh, going to the office. They're probably going to be driving motor vehicles to get there, which means their individual gas consumption goes up. So that's a sort of small example of that decision alone is sort of driving up uh, more consumption of fuel. Then you have the crude industry is uh, getting back in a big way in the next few months. They burn a whole bunch of fuel. Uh, aviation is ramping up. So Basically, whenever we start doing economic-y things, uh, which we're doing much more of, uh, that means we're going to be demanding more fuel. But it couldn't have come as a huge surprise to fuel and oil suppliers, could it, that the world was kind of reawakening, that these things were getting back on track and that the demand was going to increase? Yeah, so you've got a few factors. So um, it it takes a while. If you're talking about the, the Canadian oil sands, um, that's a particularly difficult way to extract petroleum. So even if um, even if you could give them an assurance like, oh, gas prices are going to be super high for like the next four or five years, um, you can't just put a spigot in the ground and just start creating more. I mean, there's, these are massive, multi-billion dollar operations that require 
hideous amounts of investments. And, you know, you may have noticed lately that Canada isn't great at approving uh, oil and gas projects uh, lately. So, you, you know, you're asking people to bet huge amounts of money on not a sure thing. Um, and then we don't know what's going to happen to prices in the next few years. So, yeah, it's just a function of um, there are products that you can just start, you know, man- remember masks. We had a mask shortage for a month. And then everybody just started making masks, and now there's masks everywhere. Uh, you can't really do the same with oil. Um, yeah, we know where it is. We know how to get it. Um, but you can't just say, oh, it's high now. Boom, uh, we're going to ramp up oil production. So one of the big things that's keeping these prices high is that uh, what you would normally see, and this is what you saw before the pandemic, is uh, shale oil production going up. So this is, um, this is oil. Um, these are oceans of oil into the United States that were previously inaccessible. Uh, but what the Americans figured out in the last few decades is they said, well, we can just frack the oil out. So that's why you had all of this extra oil coming out of the U.S. That's why just before the pandemic, the U.S. was the world's largest producer of oil. So, yeah, in normal circumstances, you would have the U.S. saying, oh, prices of gas are uh, are high. Uh, we're going to start fracking out more oil. Boom. You know, things are back to the normal. Everybody's got all the petroleum they need. Um, but they absolutely lost their shorts in the early months of the pandemic, remember when gas prices were like 50 cents in Alberta? I was seeing like 75 cents here in BC. Um, uh, someone was got completely, uh, you know, someone was paying for that, and that was um, a lot of the oil producers. So they're very hesitant to ramp up production because they're worried that might happen again. Because we've gotten used to things shifting. You know, some new variant comes along, everything gets locked down again, boom, prices fall, and then nobody's making any money. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned off the top uh, that you were getting some angry email that you didn't factor in or didn't talk about taxes in this particular column. Uh, we talked about it on the show yesterday with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation breaking down exactly what goes into the cost of a liter of gas. And it's sitting around in BC anyway, it's sitting around 72 cents a liter is tax. I got a lot of angry email after that too, saying I didn't talk about the companies and I didn't talk about profits and people wanting to know if this is the oil company gouging or if it's oil companies taking those much bigger profits does it factor in or do you think that factors in no usually it's a retail sense so it's very unsatisfying because i'm talking to oil experts and i'm like so are they are they just gouging us all these damn gas stations are they gouging us and they usually say well no not really um you know there are some differentials maybe at the refining edge but i mean gas stations um if you live in any major canadian city you've got gas stations run by like five to six different companies, if not more, all of them posting their prices publicly on giant signs. If you did that with most products, you would probably have high levels of competition and it's hard for anybody to sort of gouge. Um, Like imagine if you did that with, I don't know, cucumbers, if every just grocery store is just like, boom, we have a cucumber, 73 cents. Oh, I got it at 71 cents. Uh, It'd be hard to get away with, we're going to charge 10, 20 extra cents uh, for that. So yeah, usually not at the retail level, the margins aren't that high. So it'd be great if we could just blame this all on gas stations and, you know, you know, Doug Ford could pass some law, you know, forcing them to bring down their prices or something. But uh, unfortunately not. Um, I, in, in my various reporting on the oil and gas industry and sort of gas prices, you will see some gouging in Canada, but it's usually some remote area. It's some, you know, gas station along the Alaska Highway, and it's the only place you could fill up. And they'll gouge you because you don't have a choice. But in urban areas, you usually can't get away with it.
So when we kind of circle back to the the whole point of talking about this today and looking at what the factors are when we're looking at these very high gas prices and we're being told they're not going to come down anytime soon, how much of a factor is the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Uh, basically, so we were already super, super tight on gas supplies uh, because, like, as I mentioned, we don't have the production we had. Uh, we, so we have demand is like at 2019 levels, but the production is not at 2019 levels. So everybody's scrambling for whatever's left. And then what happened with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's been very few actual direct sanctions on Russian oil because they produce so much. Uh, like Europe knows that they ban Russian oil like uh, basically, their economy is going to a tailspin. I mean, Russia, uh, no, sorry, Germany gets like 30 percent of its petroleum, gets half of its gas from Russia, like a significant quantity of its petroleum. So it's like, well, we still need to run cars here. So we're not going to ban Russian gas. But the effect of the sanctions is you've seen a lot of oil and gas companies unilaterally pull out of Russia um, because they're just thinking, oh, this is just a mess. Uh, we can't, you know, they're cut off from the financial system. They're Politically, they're going nuts. They're talking about declaring martial law. So the uncertainty is so high. We're just, you know, Shell, BP, ExxonMobil, a whole bunch of others have just said, oh, screw this. Um, we, you know, it's going to cost us billions, but we are exiting the Russian market. So what's happening is even though there are no direct sanctions on Russian oil and gas, uh, suddenly uh, a lot of Russian oil producers are losing ways to sell their oil to the world market. So what's happening is Russia is one of the world's largest producers of oil. So we had an already tight uh, oil market. And then you take a major oil producer and essentially just shut them down. Uh, They're not producing. So whole oceans of oil that two weeks ago were making it to market are probably not making it to market. So the shortage just gets worse, which bids up the price more. All right, Uh, Tristan, thanks so much for this, for the column and for joining us today to talk more about it. Appreciate your time. Thank you. We have been talking a lot about red tape on the show this week. Yesterday on the program, we were chatting with the CEO of the BC Craft Brewers Association. They are raising concerns, saying they found out that rather than the streamlined process that was brought in during the pandemic for those temporary patios, in order to keep the patios, they are going to have to apply to do that. It means fees of up to $5,000 for a patio as small as six square meters, and it's a third 34-page book of guidelines that they have to follow to be able to keep those structures. We're talking about the patios that were put in place quickly, which many people applauded. Other things involved, they'll have to retain a structural engineer, prepare scaled architectural drawings. And that's all for those patios that we already see in many craft brew locations, as well as restaurants, as well as other parts of Metro Vancouver as well. Well, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade is also weighing in on this and talking about red tape. And CEO Bridget Anderson is joining us now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us today. Happy to be here, Jill. Uh, this is something that uh, the board has also sent out uh, a long thread of different areas where red tape is a problem. How big of an issue is it, especially now as businesses are trying to come back from this pandemic? Well, Jill, it just couldn't come at a worse time. Businesses and individuals are facing huge cost increases right now. Inflation is rising. We've got labor challenges that employers are dealing with, supply chain issues due to the floods gasoline uh, price hikes and now we hear from the city of Vancouver that they're also going to make it more expensive for some of those restaurants that are still struggling. We know that you know a lot of small businesses took on additional debt during the pandemic 
And this is about $130,000 on average per small business for debt. So while they're still trying to get back on their feet, they're still having debt to deal with. And if I could just say, if you remember back to the beginning of the pandemic, where there was, um, I would say, a willingness by business, by government, by individuals to really think about how to do things differently and to make it easier for businesses to operate. What's happened to that mindset? You know, why do this at this time now? It just doesn't make any sense. And that was, if you think back, there was, that was applauded. And a lot of people made the comments and suggested that, why haven't we been doing this all along? Uh, even when we talked to the Craft Brewers Association yesterday, uh, the president said, look, they, they consulted with us and asked us what needs to be done. What, what do we do moving forward? They put forward what seemed like a reasonable, common sense approach saying, ask three questions. Are you increasing capacity? No. Are you changing anything? No. Are you continuing with this, with your temporary patio? If that's the case, boom, rubber stamp it and go and go ahead. But it sounds like that's not going to be the case. Instead, we've got these 34 pages of guidelines, thousands of dollars in fees. Uh, how do you even as a small business, how do you even work with that? Well, you know, when you look at the cost of doing business in, in our region, and let's just take, you know, some of the recent examples in red tape, I think it's a bit of a nebulous idea for some people, but you've got to look at it in a really holistic way. So businesses are just individuals, and we've got a lot of small business uh, members uh, as part of the Board of Trade. They're still really struggling, but look at it over the cumulative tax increases over many years. You know, the province has introduced the employer health tax. Uh, there's been increases in corporate taxes uh, and implemented a sick leave uh, program that's going to cost employers a, uh, over $500 million a year. And then in Vancouver alone, there's been a 25% increase in municipal property taxes. So, you know, we have to be thinking about our competitiveness. We have to be thinking about economic growth. And we need measures in place that make it easier for businesses to operate and so that we can attract investment and we can also attract and retain people to work for these businesses. It just boggles my mind that the city of Vancouver would consider a proposal like this at this time. And even if it was a year extension, because we talked about that yesterday, too, that that the timing is also off. It's not as though everyone is magically back to normal and everything's going great. Yes, things are improving, but it's not there yet that the the timing is off. But but I mean, even that raises the question, if you could do this in a pandemic and it's working and it seems to be fine, why on earth do you have to start bringing in rules, calling on a structural engineer for what in many cases is a parking lot with a few patios or few picnic tables. Well, exactly. And I think, you know, we need to all be having the mindset about pandemic recovery. Our members have told us consistently over the pandemic for the past two years that pandemic recovery is their biggest concern. And we represent 5,500 members. Many of them are small and medium businesses. So they, many of them, particularly in hospitality and tourism, are struggling to get back on their feet. So why on earth would uh, the government now make it more difficult for a business to do that? It just really doesn't make any sense at all.
Uh, we're also going to be talking later on uh, in the program uh, about a story that uh, Vancouver Sun reporter Dan Fumamo, Fu, Fumano sorry, has out today. Uh, this one, too, is a real head-scratcher. It is a Little League parade that the organizers were told that there's actually new guidelines or new regulations and that they didn't get their application in in time. And, and it goes on to talk about how there's actually it's several pages that have been put out just to explain the process as far as getting the the forms saying that well that was for a, a different parade or a different event as well but it does seem like things have become far more complicated and much more complicated than they need to be i just don't know why common sense can't prevail and especially in a situation like this i don't know anybody who read that article and well done dan didn't look at that and think are you kidding me we're talking about some kids and a 30-minute parade so why on earth would the city make it complicated, make it difficult, and make it more onerous for these volunteers. These are parent volunteers. You know, Vancouver has such an opportunity to set itself on the global stage as as this great city that can be a, a fun city and attract investment. But when things like this happen, it is a real head scratcher. Uh, so what can businesses do? What can boards of trade do? I know people always say, well, you can elect new governments and you can you can vote. But this isn't all this isn't just councillors that are doing this. This these are this is city staff. These are staff members that are coming up with these policies. And yes, they're getting approved. But but how do you fight against something like this? Well, you know, I think things like um, yesterday, there was the forum that was held and there was three city councillors on there and also VPD. And I know my colleague, Nolan Marshall from the Downtown Business Association was also talking about public safety, for example. And there were hundreds of people on that on the forum call just expressing their views and really trying to find solutions. I think that is part of it. And for sure, like having a voice in in what you're seeing around public policy uh, is really important. Educating yourself and understanding. And Jill, I know, I mean, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but get out and vote. I mean, you look at our voter turnout uh, in, in municipal elections and it's low. And we've got an opportunity coming up in the fall and, you know, everybody can have their say and vote for whoever they want, but we have to get voter turnout higher as well. Uh, in, the, in the shorter term, with patio season right around the corner, or some would say it's already started or never actually stops in uh, parts of Metro Vancouver, the city defines it. In Vancouver, it's defined, I think, as April 1st is the official start. And that was one of the concerns raised yesterday as well. Even if craft breweries and restaurants and, and companies, businesses that have these temporary patios, even if they get their applications in, they're ready to spend the $5,000, get these structural engineers to come and look at, again, the picnic tables on their patios, even if they do that, there's no way that the city is going to approve the patios that are already in existence in time for the summer season. And so we're either going to be in a scenario where business owners are going to have to take that chance and be in contravention of the rules or shut them down. What does that do for, for the summer season for all these businesses? It puts all business owners in this space in a really, really challenging spot, as I said, as they're trying to get back on their feet. You can bet that the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade will be uh, advocating on their behalf and speaking to City Council about this, as, as other member and industry associations are going to as well. And, you know, as I have said, like, this is a common sense issue. And it really, I would really strongly encourage City to, to, to stand back and to pause and just to think about the in unintended consequences of, of a policy change like this. All right, Bridget, we will leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Jill. 
We're talking more now about that story I mentioned earlier. This is a Dan Fumano piece in the Vancouver Sun. The title, City Hall Red Tape Chokes Six-Decade Little League Parade Tradition. And in the story, he spoke with the Caresdale Business Improvement Association, the executive director who has organized the Little League Parade, who told Dan Fumano that every year they've applied for a permit without problem, starting the application process in January or February this year. She contacted City Hall in January and received a very unpleasant surprise, was told that there are new policies in place and that she should have applied by last November. And City Hall saying that it was too late to go ahead with the permits and that's why it couldn't be approved, that the permit would not be given to the Little League Parade. We're talking about Little League players and a parade. And as mentioned in the article, this is not an elaborate new Endeavor. It is not a huge parade that's going through many neighborhoods in the city. This is a couple of blocks where some little leaguers hold their parade. So a lot of people are upset about this and questioning why the city would change its policy and why on earth they would make it more difficult for a parade that's been happening for decades to happen once again. Joining us now to talk more about this is Ross Hill. Ross Hill is the owner of Hills of Carisdale, a retailer that's been in the neighbourhood for many, many years, also sponsor of two of the Little League teams. Ross, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Uh, thanks, Jill, for having me on. Uh, what, are, what is your understanding of what's happening then with the application and with this event? Well, I mean, Terry was turned down point blank in January and she kind of pushed back and the city just said that was the new regulations and there's no way that they're going to change. And then she sort of shelved it. So, I mean, uh, it didn't really get going again until Dan, Dan Fermano kind of got, got wind of it, I think, through the Canby Business Association because they were having some problems doing, I think, an Easter egg hunt. And so I think Dan got wind of it through that and he's kind of just brought it to the attention of everyone. As someone, though, and as a, a longtime member of the community, a retailer and a sponsor of the games, of the parade, what's your response, though, to hear that it's just been shut down like this? Well, it just seems a little bit ridiculous. I mean, uh, we've been doing the parade for well over 40 years. I've, I've been involved with the parade for 40 years. It kind of puts a smile on everybody's face. There's usually two or 300 kids parading down uh, 41st Avenue. I think the whole parade takes about 10 to 15 10 to 15 minutes. Um, you know, it's something that's been going on for years. I think with this sort of coming out of the COVID situation and everybody trying to get back to normal and, you know, kids, which I'm sure probably had, you know, a real tough time of it. It just seems kind of crazy that, uh, A, you'd put new regulations in for six months to organize something so simple, and B, what might make an exception for this kind of event or, or, this, or, or the current uh, situation that we're in. And I know in the article as well, uh, Dan spoke with City Council Rebecca Bly. She was on this program yesterday talking about red tape, uh, talking about the cup fee, so a, a different red tape uh, that's having uh, some bad reaction. Uh, she was hopeful that there would be a solution. I, I mean, it does seem bizarre, doesn't it, that that the kids in a little league uh, that are involved in little league teams can't just have their parade? Well, it seems crazy that you need six months' notice to do something that's been ongoing every year for 40 or 50 years. I mean, you might think that the city would have it penciled in and contact us versus the other way around. I mean, it's not like, I think it was humorous in the article, as Dan sort of said, it's not like we're applying for alligator wrestling <laughs> in um, in Elm Park or having a motorcycle race down the main drag. I mean, all we're doing is something that we've always done. So, 
you know, why on earth does it take the city, city, which is basically, I mean, all the city does for our parade is I think they supply three or four policemen on motorcycles. That's the only thing they have to do. They don't have to change the parking, they don't have to do anything. It's just three or four policemen on motorcycles. That's all we're asked for. That's all we've ever asked for. And, you know, how on earth does it take six months to organize that? I mean, I think one of the uh, humorous comments in the comment page on Dan's article was, I mean, just call it a protest and you have a police escort taking you all the way down the road, which I thought, well, you know, you know, isn't that funny? I mean, people that aren't working with the city can can shut down the Granville Street Bridge and, and nobody, you know, nobody seems to pay for anything. But, you know, we're trying to stage an event for, for kids to put a smile on everybody's face in a neighborhood and, and we can't do it, you know, with four and a half months notice. Uh, and you kind of answered my question. I was curious how much needs to go into this because you wouldn't think that a couple of blocks with a little league with little league players that it would be a lot. So it's it's three or four police officers. But is it it's nothing else then as far as do you need the city do you need city signage to close streets or anything else from the city? No, no. There's no there's no signage. I mean, I think they do have to work with TransLink to, just to tell TransLink that that they have to take one of their buses off on, you know, you know, in that, in that 15 minute zone from like 10 to 10, 15. But what happens is the policeman sort of come out of U street, he closes the traffic in one direction. Then the two of them zip down to West Boulevard. They close the traffic in the other direction as a, as a police passes that, uh, as a policeman pass out, they all kind of zip ahead and kind of, you know, do their stuff. So, I mean, I think it literally takes four policemen. And, and like you said, it's not something that's new. It's obviously something that's been happening for decades. And from what I understand, it's been happening without a problem. And it's not like like neighbors are complaining that this is happening. No, no, I don't think we've ever got a complaint. I mean, I'm sure some people don't like to be blocked off because they don't know what's going on for 15 minutes. But no, we've never had a complaint. There's never been a safety concern. I mean, you know, you know it's not like the big Santa Claus parade down Georgia Street and the whole thing's a big deal. No, it is basically just a really wonderful community event that puts a smile on everybody's face and I'm sure when you're that 10 year old and you're marching in the parade and your family's watching and everything else and and the other fun part of it is they all march into uh, Elm Park and then they do the ceremonial first pitch and then they, uh, the uh, the band from the parade plays the anthem and then every all the kids stand in formation and then it's, and then the uh, and then the uh, chair of the chair of the little league says you know season on game on and then and then everybody disperses Right. So, yeah, not like it's a, a weekend-long event that's going to inconvenience the neighborhood. No, and, and, and I think they also touched in the article just in terms of the process. I mean, it used to be a three-page a three-page application, and, and Terry said, you know, now it's a 17-page application. I mean, you know, I'm not sure why, but it just seems that, you know, things are just getting increasingly complicated, and it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, mentioned as well uh, off the top that uh, you're the owner of Hills of Carisdale. Your business has been there for many, many years. Uh, what are your thoughts in general on red tape and the city and red tape? Is it getting worse, more cumbersome? Well, I, you know, we're paying more and we get less. I mean, you know, the taxes are extremely high, particularly for commercial uh, properties. Um, and it just does, it doesn't seem that you're getting anything you know, in return. So, you know, we ask for very little. Um, I don't think the city really 
focuses enough on the neighborhoods. I think the neighborhoods are the backbone of the city, and I think the city should be basically, I mean, the city hall should really be coming to the neighborhoods and asking us, you know, what needs to be done, particularly during COVID. I mean, you know, I think the storefront retailers and restaurants have, have been the most affected by the COVID shutdown. So, you know, in my way of thinking, the city should be reaching out, asking the neighborhoods, how can we help you, not how can we hinder you. All right. Well, Ross Hill, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this story. I know a lot of people are responding and reacting to it today. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us on this sunny Friday afternoon. We've been talking a lot about red tape, and we're going to revisit something we talked about earlier this week. We had a Vancouver City Councillor on the program talking about the 25-cent fee for single-use cups in the city of Vancouver. Councillor Rebecca Bly had asked for it to be repealed. It is clearly a, fa- a flawed bylaw, but instead, Council spent about five more hours. They did hear from some speakers, but in the end, passed the bylaw, kept the bylaw, with a few tweaks to the bylaw. One being if it's a voucher for a free drink, it won't be subject to the 25 cent fee. And it also talks about businesses being required to allow reusable cups, to accept reusable cups. Uh, this is all to keep cups out of the food, of the, the landfill, which I think people are all in agreement with, but there's still uh, not really uh, everybody in agreement on whether or not this bylaw is the best way to do it. Well, joining me again, once again, is Christina Sunny, the owner of Doro Gelato Cafe. Christina Sunny owns two cafes in Vancouver. So we wanted to get a, a better idea on how things are going. Christina, thank you so much for coming back on the show today. No worries. Thank you for having me back, Jill. Uh, well, it's been so great to be able to check in with you and get the perspective of a cafe owner on this. So how are things going with you having to charge with the charging of the 25 cent fee for cups? Well, certainly, you know, the guests don't like it. And I think I said this in our initial show as well, our initial talk. You know, people don't like to be nickeled and dime. And, um, you know, we, we, do, we do get the comments from them saying, oh, are you charging me? Because basically, you're charging me for the cup. You're charging me for gelato cup is the same thing. We basically have to charge for a cup to put the gelato in because it's no different than a coffee cup. Hmm, interesting. And what would happen then if somebody came in and with a reusable bowl or something saying, oh, I'd rather get my gelato in this? We've done that before. Prior to COVID, we used to do that. We had some some customers down in our Denman location. Um, you know, it, it's an interesting neighborhood and a lot of elderly on fixed incomes. And they would come in with their containers and say, could I get my four scoops in here? And absolutely, we would do it. And it's charging the fee then, like you said, customers not, not pleased with it in many cases. With the way that the bylaw is now, the tweaks that they brought in to this, is because one of the complaints also was people who might be on a fixed income or somebody that might have a gift card or a voucher to get a drink at a certain place, not having the quarter to spend, not having cash, not having the quarter to spend. So that is now exempt. How will that work out? Or do you think as, as the cafe... As as a cafe owner, how will you be able to implement that, or will that make things more difficult? Well, I mean, when if it's if it's a free drink or a free voucher, then of course we would not charge it. But on a gift card, why would we not charge it? I mean, it's it's the card is like it's already been paid; it's cash. So why wouldn't we collect that money for the cup? 
Right. Will it make it difficult or more more complicated for you, though, as far as for your staff having to figure out when they charge the cup fee and when they don't? <laughs> yes, because now you've put so many other dynamics into it. I mean, and now what do we do? We collect this voucher. Now, when we get audited, do we have to present to the inspector, well, we didn't charge it for this one because we got a voucher for a free coffee? Right. It, it does seem like it's going to make things a bit more complicated. It does. It most certainly will. <laughs> uh, what about the part in the bylaw? Because it was the issue of uh, when COVID hit uh, and places not accepting reusable or sorry, um, the reusable personal cups. Uh, a lot of places, I mean, places weren't even accepting reusable shopping bags for a, a great deal of time. In this bylaw, it, it, it has the language of requiring businesses that businesses must uh, be in a position, must be able to use a reusable cup. Are, are, are your staff members back to being comfortable doing that? Um, well, I, I read that I, and I, I understand that's going to be in July that they want to put that in place. And I'm thinking that by the time July arrives, we should be comfortable enough to, you know, to receive people's cups from outside and, and give them a rinse under boiling water and, and return it to them with their coffee inside. I don't have a problem doing it. I really don't. Um, whether everybody feels that way is a different story. Uh, so it seems like that part is okay, and that part can be dealt with pretty pretty easily. But one of the other questions that keeps coming up as well is the money that's collected goes to the businesses. But where is the, is there any enforcement that you see, or or how is it how is it made that businesses is there direction on what you're supposed to do specifically with that money? No, there isn't. And and what's really interesting, Jill, is you know. I, I read that article and and I started to do the math on it. And when you think about it, in 2018, they said that 82 million single cups went into the garbage. So today that same number, you know, might yield a cost to a consumer of 20 million. And still 50% are likely to go in the garbage. The money that's taken in, how is that going to be controlled? How are these multinational companies taking in all this money when Kennedy Stewart says, well, no, we can't scrap it because the, they've already paid all, these, all this money out to amend their POS, their menu boards, their, their, their notifications. Okay, but it's been two months. They've already taken that money in. Why don't they just use that money to take it back off again? Right. And your point being that this isn't, uh, while, while the goal is to keep cups from out of the landfill, this particular bylaw, this strategy isn't going to do that. No, it's not. Because, you know, it's costing the consumer another $22 million. And in an economy where, you know, we're already with inflation struggling, and now you want to charge an additional 25 cents. And so the business owners, it, you know, likely, who's going to pay for it? We're all going to pay for it. Who's going to enforce it? Some new inspector and at the taxpayer's cost. The whole scene seems, seems senseless to me. Simply I- senseless. It does also seem, and when we talk to the councillor about that one major loophole of the gift cards, could there not also be 
a way for businesses, would it not just be easier to say, come in, uh, if you buy a muffin and this, or if you buy, if you're a, a place, a, a bigger, say a, a fast food, a quick service restaurant, uh, you buy a hamburger and this, you get a free drink. And if, and if the, and just up the cost. So the cost of the drink is incorporated in it. Therefore it's a free drink. You don't have to worry about collecting the 25 cents. You don't have to worry about showing that because you never sold any beverages and call it a day. Yeah, but the problem with that is not everybody wants a drink, right? Mm-hmm. So right. I, I just think that, you know, there's, there's, I, I, I can appreciate um, Mrs. Bly's comments about, you know, council can't get around the kind of common sense. You know, we're not asking to scrap it. These four women on this council, I, have, I must speak to them because I give them credit for trying to make some sensible changes. But, you know, there's better things we can do with the environment versus charging the 25 cents. Th- that cup is still going to go in the garbage, Jill. Exactly. So would it be better then, do you think, what if it was more of a reward system in that if you brought in your reusable cup, you get a 25% discount or the cups themselves, have, it's a deposit and it's a 25 cent deposit to bring it back or to bring it to, to a recycle bin so it's not going into the landfill? Well, I think the second one is a little more challenging. The first one, if you bring your cup in and you would like your coffee served in that cup, absolutely, I'm happy to give you X percentage off the coffee price because you bring in your own cup. And, and would it to be me, more? That makes more sense. Sure. And some people have been then suggesting also the idea of the deposit. But how would that one, or would that one, do you think not be? It wouldn't be as feasible. I, I don't see the deposit. I, I, I can't see us managing deposits and the customer and who's the customer and which cup. And I, it's just, it's too much administrative for the staff. And you've got turnover. You can't, you can't administer that kind of a thing. But a discount on your own cup, bringing it in, is, is very feasible. All right. Uh, Christina, I don't, I, I, I'm almost loath to ask this because we've been talking so much about patios and red tape about patios. Do you have patios at your locations? <laughs> Oh, I do. <laughs> and what are your thoughts on uh, patios? And uh, they're now bringing in these new permit fees and structural engineers, uh, whether it's a temporary one to keep it or, or permanent. Your thoughts on the red tape there? And our 34-page patio application? Yes. <laughs> well, again, it, 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 it's, we had them up in COVID. There was no issue. It's like... Why are we trying to rewrite something or fix something that isn't broken? It's like the poor little guys who want their parade down 41st Avenue. Why? The patios were up. They worked. People enjoyed them. Nobody was killed. Nobody got hurt. Why can they just not leave it alone than to spend hours trying to rewrite something that's not broken? What will it mean for your patios? Because we talked to the craft brewers yesterday and they said, even if everybody adhered to these rules, filled out the 34 pages, put in their non-refundable deposit fee for the application, put in that money for the application, even if they did all of that, which isn't feasible, there's still no way they're all going to be approved in time for this season. So, so where does that leave you? Well, yeah, April 1st is coming up in, what, two weeks? Uh, close, and of course, a little bit more than that, yeah, but yeah, within a month. Yeah, <laughs> within a month. So let, let's let's count how many working days of the city 
if 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 we want to be a little more realistic um there's no way the city is going to process that many applications in the next 10 working days so once again we're going to be delayed in getting our patio out i've got my patio it's ready to go up i can't put it up until what may june now i've already lost there's going to be some beautiful weather the cherry blossoms are coming it's patio season patio season is starting why are they doing this now in the first of march when patio season starts april 1st why did they not bring this to us last fall and like you said too though and this is what the the craft brewers were saying they put forward a proposal saying ask three questions is it the same patio same number of seats you're going ahead again boom rubber stamp it and let it go because like you said this worked it was streamlined for the beginning of the pandemic why couldn't they simply do this for one more year Exactly. And if you want to make changes and you want to or you feel that, you know, you go out into the communities and you look at the patios and you feel that some may not be structurally sound or some may, you know, may have issues. Okay, then address those. But don't punish everyone for something that doesn't, you know, don't make everybody do all this work. That's not necessary. It's, uh, I, I know a lot of people uh, shaking their heads over that and, and certainly uh, are going to be hoping to get answers or hoping to get some, some update, uh, some more clarification on that. Uh, in the meantime, Christina, thank you again so much for coming back on the show mm-hmm. and uh, for joining us to talk more about this. Appreciate it. I really appreciate being back, Jill. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. It is time to shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk about a great new production that is on right now. It is put on by the Arts Club Theatre Company. Also taking a bit of time to talk about what it's like being back in theatres with them, being back at full capacity with those rules being lifted. So joining us now is Ashley Corcoran, Artistic Director with the Arts Club Theatre. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk a little bit. I know I don't think you were at the opening night, but I was very lucky. I got to go and check out Kim's Convenience. So can you talk a little bit about Kim's, Kim's Convenience and what the, what the show is all about? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so Kim's Convenience uh, is a play by Inns Choi. Um, it's a play that started off in Toronto at a French festival level and then ended up becoming a full production. Um, and then eventually became the television show on CBC that so many people know. Um, and the, but not everyone necessarily knows that it actually started as a play first, and it did. And so it's about um, a family who run a convenience store in Toronto. Um, and it's really a relationship, uh, a story that follows the relationship between the parents and the children. And um, it's both a comedy and a drama, and it's one of my favorite plays. And I'm so excited that we're doing it at the Arts Club. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I, and I, I think you've, you've kind of hit it on the, the nail on the head there. And so many people will associate it with the TV show and will have watched episodes of the TV show when it was on CBC, but not realizing it started on the stage. It started as That's a play. Right. Yeah, that's right. I'm, um, I wasn't there on opening night because I'm actually on mat leave right now. And so what's happening over here is I, I have a very squirmy seven-month-old in my lap as I'm trying to talk to you. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's a play that I saw um, originally, um, you know, more than a decade ago when it was first done in Toronto. And, and I saw it um, at a student matinee. And the kids that were there were all from Regent Park, which is where the play is based in and it was so amazing to see this play surrounded by these students 
who were seeing themselves on stage for the first time. And that was one of the reasons why I fell in love with it then. Um, but now that I've become a parent, there's this other level of really understanding, really having empathy for both the children in the play, the adult children in the play, and the parents and how they're you know, really trying to communicate and understand each other. Oh, well, first, thank you for multitasking and yeah. for, for still being with us. <laughs> You're with, wondering what the sounds are <laughs> in the background. With the squirmy seven-month-old. We, we've gotten used to a lot of that during COVID. Children yeah. and a lot of dogs barking often in the background oh, yeah. of segments. That so, may happen. <laughs> that may also happen over here. Oh, that yeah. is absolutely okay. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, my date for the evening at the play is actually from Toronto and asked me after saying, did you get the references? Because it was Regent Park and I think at one part of the play, there's other references to different parts of a Toronto, different neighborhoods, where if you're from there, you would know exactly what they're talking about. It wouldn't have to be explained. Uh, but do you think that makes it more difficult for a Vancouver audience, or does it translate pretty well? I mean, I think it's a really universal story. It's a story about um, Canadian, a Canadian-Korean family, and so it's hyper-specific in terms of that reality. But um, as someone who isn't from a background, a Korean-Canadian background, the ideas about how parents and children interact with each other and how, um, you know, hopes and dreams could be shared or they can be divergent is so universal. And I would say the same thing for um, the references to Toronto. Certainly, if you know the city, there's it's always exciting to hear a street or you know, a landmark that you know being mentioned on stage as something that I find really exciting in theatre. But it's a universal story, so it doesn't take away from the, the overall meaning. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the return uh, to full capacity as well. And you had so many productions that were cancelled because of the pandemic uh, and then bringing it back. What is it like having uh, the full capacity theatres and being able to welcome people back? Oh, it's so wonderful. It's true. We had 24 um productions that were canceled. So we, you know, that we were really um, impacted by the pandemic. And now being able to be back at our Stanley Theatre, which is our largest theatre, is fantastic. We were at 100% earlier on in the season. And then, of course, over Christmas with Omicron, um, things were reduced to 50%. Uh, we kind of held off selling any more tickets for Kim's Convenience at that point because we already were at 50% or higher capacity. And then when the um, public health announced that we could go back to 100%, it was very exciting to see the thirst in the community to get back to live theater. Our, t- um, our you know phones started ringing off the hook. Um, the audience has really responded to being able to be back there again. Of course, we follow all the um, you know, public health safety protocols like masks and vaccine passport and all of that. Um, but being able to be in 100% capacity, I think, makes for a greater experience for the audience that's there. There's more of a community or communal feeling. Um, and it's also really exciting for the actors on stage to have a, a full house like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed in this production there was no intermission and I was curious if that's because of this play simply doesn't have an intermission or is that because of the guidelines or health health guidelines to not have people kind of mingling and eating and drinking yeah no that's just this play was written without um uh, an intermission. So, you know, for um, uh, the Christmas show we did, which was uh, Dolly Parton's Smoky Mountain Christmas Carol, we did have an intermission, but we ask people to not mingle in the in the lobby to get their drink or their snack from from the bar and then return to their seats and to keep their masks on, except for when they're actively eating or drinking. 
And, and I would imagine that will continue. We are expecting next week to hear uh, some more about lifting of restrictions in this province. And uh, I would imagine that will change or that could be a, a fluid situation as we move forward. Yeah, I think fluid is the, the operative word for the world that we're living in now, but we're very interested to hear what public health will be saying next week, and then we'll be assessing um, how to move forward. Uh, do you find, too, like you said, with so many shows cancelled and then trying to, to find ways to really keep people connected, uh, it, it seems like it's a very, that's um, the word I'm looking for, it seems like it's a, it's a the audience, people who go to the shows and are interested in live theatre are, are a dedicated bunch and, 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 didn't, um, and, and were excited to get back. So is, has it been, not easier, I guess, but has it been, what's the experience been like getting people back into theatres and comfortable being back in theatres? That's such a great question. I mean, I think we're still figuring that out because um, this season we usually we do, you know, 15 to 18 productions a year in our three different venues plus a tour. And this year we're really just focusing on five productions at the Stanley Theatre. Um, next season, which will start in September, our hopes and plans and ambitions are to get back into all of our venues once more. Um, so this, it, we're definitely still in, you know, a rebuild time, a transitional time. All of that being said, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the support of our audience um, through philanthropy, uh, like it, the kinds of level of support and donations that our audience made uh, during our darkest time when we couldn't produce at all. Um, to, you know, the audience really responding, both in buying subscription single tickets for this season, but then, like I said, you know, just even just recently with um, going back to 100%, seeing this thirst and this bump of people purchasing tickets and wanting to be together gives us a lot of optimism for our future. And we feel, yeah, just so grateful for the Vancouver um, and Lower Mainland community to, to be supporting us like this. And And I think people really missed it. Like, this is the kind of thing that all of us want to do, whether that's going to the theater or it's going to a sports game or going out to a restaurant or going to a, you know, a party or a concert. We as humans like to be together and like to be um, consuming art and entertainment together um, and storytelling. So we, we feel quite positive. It does feel like such a almost a family setting as well. There was a, a moment at the night where I was there and and it's still I mean, the, the mild inconvenience of lining up because you have to show the vaccine certificate before getting in. And it was one of the, the front of the house staff coming to the line saying this will move a lot faster if, if everything's if you get it ready, you're going to have your certificate first and your ticket. But then it was announced at before the production that that person who'd worked there for many, many years was actually retiring. And there, were, there was a, a, a long uh, people saying, yelling out, no, no, because people knew yeah. this person and were used to seeing this face when going to the theater. And it just gave such a, a family feel to what is still a very big event. Yeah, that's that's our Peter Chappick. And we are so... Um you know, sad that he's retiring and also, of course, really happy for him as he steps into the next, you know, journey in his life. Um, but yes, we always say he is he is the face of the Stanley. And it is, you're right, you know, the Arts Club started, uh, you know, almost 60 years ago as a club for artists when it was um, the only way you could drink, basically, was if you were part of a private members club. And then they started putting on plays above an attic on Seymour Street and, you know, the, the theater has ended up, you know, pre-pandemic levels, we were the third largest theater company in Canada, the largest theater company that runs year round, you know, a very large company. But at its core, it's still really 
um, a warm kind of family inclusive club uh, where a lot of people know each other and where we we're always really excited to welcome new people as well. All right. Well, it is a great production. And like you said, so many people are just so excited to get back out and to be doing uh, these fun events with other people. So Ashley, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. So appreciate it. Oh my gosh. Thanks for having me and and letting me multitask while doing so. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Have a great weekend. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much.